We are often told, don't meet your heroes. They will only disappoint. I've met some of my heroes, and I've met my enemies. My advice is, don't meet your enemies. Those are the ones who will truly disappoint. Don't meet your enemies. Don't meet their wives or their children. Because once you meet them, they stop being your enemies. And then the only one left to hate is yourself. I'll have more on that and what's going on in Israel and Gaza later on in the show. This is the mop-up for November 1st, 2023. I'm David Feldman. Please share this with your friends via social media or email. Leave a comment. You know I read your comments. Thank you for them. Subscribe to my channel and my newsletter. And of course, like this episode, please, so I remain in your feed. That's the best way to make sure that I remain in your feed is by liking this episode. I should mention this is an audio podcast, so you can listen to me wherever you want by downloading this wherever you get your podcasts. The ballots for the 2024 Republican primaries must be finalized by mid-January. It is the job of the Secretary of State in each of our 50 states to prepare those ballots and monitor the elections. Wherever there is a Democratic Secretary of State, there's a possibility a lawsuit is looming in which citizens are, u- are suing to get Donald Trump's name scraped off the ballot in accordance with Sections 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states nobody is permitted to hold higher office here in America if they swore an oath to protect the Constitution and then engaged in an insurrection. Free speech for the people. A public interest group out of Massachusetts filed one of several lawsuits in Michigan to scrub Trump's name off that state's ballot, insisting his words incited an insurrection on January 6, 2021. Trump's lawyers filed a countersuit in Michigan on Tuesday, insisting all these lawsuits should be thrown out because what happened on January 6 was a riot. They say it wasn't an insurrection. It was a riot. And removing Trump's name from the ballot would, quote, irreparably damage his supporters, unquote. His supporters are voting for Trump. They're already irreparably damaged. As I said earlier, the primary ballots must be finalized in roughly 70 days. And so if Donald Trump is going to be scrubbed from any ballots, then these lawsuits must happen now so they can eventually be adjudicated by our nation's top court, the Supreme Court. Assuming the justices on that court, one third of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, will even be willing to hear these cases. Moving very quickly through the courts is a trial in Colorado where several citizens have sued the Democratic Secretary of State 
to remove Trump's name from their ballot, and that trial started on Monday. Eric Olson is the attorney representing the citizens who want Trump's name off the ballot. And in his opening statement, he said the 14th Amendment automatically disqualifies Trump from holding office ever again. But Scott Gessler, the attorney representing Trump, told the judge that this case is nothing short of election interference and said Trump's First Amendment rights are being trampled because he didn't incite anyone to storm our nation's capital. Attorneys representing the plaintiffs said Trump didn't need to explicitly order his people to storm the Capitol. They added that he is a masterful parser of words, and he knows just how to provide his minions with enough to read between the lines to know exactly what to do. In fact, that is precisely what Michael Cohen testified last week in the fraud trial. That's what he testified to. He called Trump a mob boss who can convey a message to commit a crime without ever overtly telling you to commit that crime. Michael Cohen said, you know what he's saying by how he says it, not by precisely what he says. It's his tone. And in his speech on January 6th, Donald Trump told his supporters to march down to the Capitol and fight like hell. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And you have to fight like hell. He said this knowing full well they were heavily armed. We know the Secret Service told Trump the people in the crowd had guns and knives. And he said, what do I care? They're not going to use them on me. Several of the speakers who preceded Trump that day also used language to incite the mob. The judge in Colorado is expected to issue a ruling by the end of the week, and then it winds and wends its way to the Supreme Court. A similar case is being heard starting Thursday before the Minnesota State Supreme Court. And like I said, if these cases make it to the Supreme Court, it will force our justices to decide on essentially three things. What exactly does this Reconstruction Era, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, mean? And can a candidate for president be disqualified by the courts without an act of Congress? Now, there are some who believe only an act of Congress can keep Trump off the ballot. For example, had Trump been found guilty in any of his two impeachments, then a vote would have taken place afterwards in the Senate as to whether he should ever be allowed to hold elective office again. Congress, by a vote, can forbid someone from ever holding elective office again. But the question that will be before the court is, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in and of itself grant enough license to a court a panel of judges to ban Donald Trump from running for office again. 
So there is the wishful thinking that our courts will save us from Donald Trump. What is the likely outcome? I'm guessing the Supreme Court will overturn any lower court ruling that throws Trump's name off the ballot. I would assume with a first glance ruling, the court would say Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not applicable. In other words, they're going to rule Section 3 is unenforceable by the courts only through an act of Congress. That's what I'm guessing. But if they decide it is enforceable by the courts, and again, I doubt they ever would, then the Supreme Court must decide if what happened on January 6 was in fact an insurrection or was it a riot? Was it a riot? You'll notice that special counsel Jack Smith indicted Donald Trump for his activities on January 6, but none of the counts against Trump involve the word insurrection. It's worth noting, on the other hand, that leaders of the Oath Keepers and leaders of the Proud Boys were tried by our Justice Department and found guilty of and are now serving time for seditious conspiracy. Seditious conspiracy. So, can Trump be guilty of sedition, but not guilty of participating in an insurrection? I don't know. Again, I don't see any way the Supreme Court gets to that question. I don't see how they even entertain the idea of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment empowering a court to throw Donald Trump off the ballot. But let's say they rule that, yes, Section 3 can be enforced by the courts, and yes, January 6 was, in fact, an insurrection. Then they must weigh Trump's First Amendment rights versus what he intended with those words he spoke on January 6. For example, his words may have triggered an insurrection, but was that his intent? Did he intend to incite an insurrection? I believe it's called mens rea. So you could get this all the way to the Supreme Court you can even get our Supreme Court to agree that Trump's words led to an actual insurrection. But did Trump intend for those words to lead to an insurrection? You must then establish criminal intent. And personally, I think most of my listeners agree, yes, he intended to provoke an insurrection. I don't know if the Supreme Court will ever get to that point. I do know that Trump is going to be asked to testify in this Colorado trial that's going on right now. Could this turn into another prosecution over January 6th? I don't know. I mean, you would have to establish Trump's state of mind or lack thereof. You must determine whether he intended to launch an actual insurrection is that what these trials about the 14th Amendment are going to try to 
accomplish with so little time left? I mean, the ballots are about to be finalized in roughly 70 days. I don't think they have the army of lawyers necessary to bring about such a momentous case. I know people like Lawrence Tribe are behind it, but I'm usually wrong, so I just don't see this happening. I hope it happens. Uh, I like him bogged down in one lawsuit after another. Maybe we'll be surprised. I do think it's possible a state court will throw him off a ballot. But I have no doubt the Supreme Court will overturn such a ruling, insisting there's a much simpler and more democratic way to determine whether January 6th was an insurrection and whether Trump incited it on purpose. And that that way to determine all that is by holding an election next November and letting the American people decide. I can hear those falsely reassuring words coming from the Supreme Court as they punt on this case. Let the voters decide in November whether or not he incited an insurrection. The problem with those words, insisting the people will decide, is we now have an election denier as a speaker, as well as an entire Republican Party that won't accept the results of an election if it doesn't go the way they want. They won't let the people decide. Sometimes they won't even let them vote. And this is a party where a majority think there's no problem with resorting to violence if things don't go your way. So it's kind of a catch-22 here with our court. But I'm sure uh, there are enough justices, I'm almost sure, there are enough justices on the Supreme Court to rule it would be a bad precedent for a court to disqualify a candidate for office, especially when he's leading so demonstrably in the polls. So I'm rooting for everybody who's following these cases, crew, everybody, God bless you. Uh, But I don't want to get my hopes up here. My hopes are up, though, when it comes to our criminal justice system, which is bringing Donald Trump to his knees. And we have several civil lawsuits that have exposed him as a rapist, as well as a charlatan who has spent decades lying about his net worth. And yet, despite all of this being out in the open, in the public domain, Trump has been able to hypnotize enough imbeciles to make the Republican nomination perhaps, perhaps, undeniably, once again, within his grasp. He's also running neck and neck with Joe Biden in the general election. On paper, any rational observer would conclude Donald Trump isn't fit for office, and judges should decide right now he should be locked away for life and not be permitted to run for office. But there is a fever, a Trump fever in this country. However intense it is on the right, I do believe, I have faith that Donald Trump is his own worst enemy and is about to fall apart emotionally, physically, and politically. But assuming he survives 
this onslaught of trials and his popularity remains constant, at what point do we rely on our courts to step in and go against the will of the people if the will of the people has been poisoned? Courts, by their very nature, are anti-majoritarian. They were put in place by our Constitution to protect us from the MAGA mob. But many members of this court are the MAGA mob. Like I said earlier, Trump appointed three out of nine. And Clarence Thomas's wife wasn't just there on January 6th for the Stop the Steal rally where Trump spoke. She helped organize it. So four out of nine justices are MAGA Republicans. And Samuel Alito might have been appointed by George W. Bush, but he's the one who overturned Roe v. Wade and is worse than the whole lot of them combined. So, yeah, the courts are supposed to protect the minority from the majoritarian rule. But the only minority this court is interested in protecting is the billionaire class. The same way James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, wanted to protect the grossly outnumbered slaveholders from the mob of slaves and abolitionists. The Supreme Court throughout its history, apart from the Warren Court bleeding into the Burger Court, has very little interest throughout history in protecting minority rights unless that minority is the richest 1%. So again, no, I don't think our courts are ever going to entertain the idea of keeping Donald Trump off our ballot, even if he really isn't a billionaire. Again, I do think, however, our criminal and civil courts are wearing Donald Trump down. Our criminal and civil court system, they don't work for everyone, practically nobody, but I do think right now they are working on Donald Trump grinding away at his self-confidence. I see it. Despite Donald Trump's open defiance in front of his crowds, Trump remains deferential in the courtrooms. Yes, he violates the court orders, the gag orders, but he is deferential and terrified in those courtrooms because he knows this is serious. And... If you watch his speeches, you can see it's taking a toll on his already dyspeptic temperament. Yesterday, we went over Trump's growing list of Biden-esque malapropisms, where he gets the names of cities, countries, and world leaders wrong. Now, it's one thing for Donald Trump to be insane. His crowd loves him because of that. But when his performances begin to suffer because he's addled, when he continues to mispronounce and grope for words like he's doing right now, when he commits blatantly false mistakes, like telling the people of Sioux City, Iowa, they live in Sioux Falls, well, those morons might accept a lie that the 2020 election was stolen, but they're not so stupid that they don't know where they live. Trump called 
Sioux City, Sioux Falls, and they know something's up with him. At some point, Trump is going to have to come out of hiding and debate. He's going to do some more town halls, and he's not the same man he was three months ago. The pressures from both the criminal and civil trials, the humiliations from those trials, especially the civil lawsuit in New York that's going on right now, the way it's unzipping his fly to reveal there's nothing there to see, along with the pressures of nonstop campaigning. All of this is clearly eating away at Donald Trump's synapses in that addled brain of his. And he's turning into a gaffe machine. The human brain, assuming Trump has one, is prone to making even more mistakes when suddenly people are paying attention to every word you utter, coiled like a snake in the grass waiting to pounce on your every verbal blunder. Trump's entire performance on the campaign trail has been making fun of Joe Biden's senescence. He portrays Biden as old and doddering, and it's funny. But it doesn't work when you call Joe Biden Barack Obama, which is what the clearly addled and senile Donald Trump is doing. Now, I also happen to think Joe Biden is old and doddering. And I also think that works very much to his advantage. Yes, it's hard to hear what he's saying. He speaks softly. But that offers the antidote to Trump this country is craving. Humility, stability, a man who is more concerned about doing things than telling us what he's going to do. There is perhaps no other public figure in America right now who serves as the most perfect corrective to Donald Trump than Joe Biden, because Joe Biden is everything Donald Trump is not. And yes, Joe Biden is clearly aging. He's frail. But I wish my grandparents were still alive. They were frail. I'd be hanging on their every words. We listen to our grandparents, at least we should. They know things. And voters, American voters, American voters know they know things. They know Joe Biden knows things. One of the things Biden reminds us of is the limitations of humanity, of, of people. We're all limited. Ronald Reagan was able to win re-election by reminding us that we're all human and limited. And another thing that Joe Biden reminds some of us firebrands who want it now, he reminds us of the limitations of the presidency. I'm going to piss off some people here, but I'm going to say this. There's only so much a president is allowed to get done. That's the system. You know, I, I wish, 
you know, if Bernie, I have this fantasy that Bernie would have come in and given us everything we wanted, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt didn't give us everything we wanted. There, it took him, he had to run four times to get everything done and he didn't get it all done. And Lyndon Johnson didn't get everything done. Uh, there's only so much we allow a president to accomplish. But Trump doesn't remind us of that. He is the complete opposite. Trump does not remind us of the limitations to the job of president. Instead, he is a siren call to the authoritarians, the ruthless anti-democratic fascists in America who want to unbridle the constitutional restraints placed on the executive branch so Trump can do as he sees fit, or more likely as the Heritage Foundation in Project 2025 sees fit, where they plan for Trump to hit the ground running after his inauguration within 100 days dismantle pretty much the entire administrative state. But that's not how things work. Uh, this is the way the country is. Uh, you know, I, it's unfortunate, but maybe not so much. Uh, I have uh, moral certitude. I know Medicare for all is right. And anyone who disagrees with me is morally deficient and is going to burn in hell. And I believe that to the core of my very being. If you think for-profit health care is acceptable, not only are you going to burn in hell, I have such moral certitude on this that I think you deserve to burn in hell. And I mean that. I mean that. But our system is not set up for my moral certitude. One of the saving graces of our system, and there are only a couple, uh, is it does not allow for moral certitude. Speaker Johnson's crazy religious beliefs notwithstanding. It is why our Supreme Court can overturn Roe v. Wade, but women can still get abortions in America as long as they can afford bus fare out of Texas, as well as a hotel room. It's not good, but a new study shows that since Roe was overturned, the number of abortions has gone up in America. Yes, they decreased in states where they were outlawed, but increased dramatically in states where it's still legal. Now, if you're under the age of 18 and you've been raped by uh, your father or an uncle, this is a, a nightmare. I'm not trivializing uh, the, the way Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Uh, it is a horrible and dreadful situation. But the point I'm making is our system doesn't allow for absolute moral certitude quite yet, quite yet. Mike Pence, nobody likes Mike Pence. You know, I'll give the evangelicals credit. They have moral certitude, right? They want to turn America into a, a white, 
Christian theocracy. But they know they're full of shit. It's why they support Donald Trump. They know, they, I, I have a little faith in the faithful that they picked Donald Trump because they know they're completely full of shit. Well, there are limitations to being president. Presidents get four years and they can only get things done if they have the permission from the Senate, the House, and the Supreme Court. There are limitations. And when Biden or Obama are in office, those limitations are very frustrating. But when people like Trump or George W. Bush are in office, those limitations are a godsend. I'm not defending the system. I'm not defending the status quo. But the news has been so depressing and so hopeless that I'm looking for some glimmers of hope and a little patriotism to get us through the next year, because it's not going to be easy getting Joe Biden reelected. Bernie isn't running, and Joe Biden is a difficult candidate to prop up and defend, but defend him we must. Whatever mistakes this country makes, from invading Iraq to giving tax cuts to the rich on the backs of the poor, our entire system is complicit. That's the way they set it up. It's not just the president. It's not just the Republicans. The entire system is complicit. It was the Democrats who approved all of George W. Bush's war authorizations. People forget that the Senate had the majority in 2002. Tom Daschle, Democrat, was the Senate majority leader. And he gave George W. Bush the war authorization to go into Iraq. It was the Democrats who didn't fight hard enough to stop the tax cuts. Bush's tax cuts, Trump's tax cuts. And it's the Democrats who just recently, when they had both houses of Congress and a president in the Oval Office, never made a peep about reversing those tax cuts for the rich. Our system in America is set up for better or worse, mostly worse, to spread the credit and the blame around for everyone. So in the end, it is still up to the American people. I know that sounds Pollyannish of me, but I still believe it's up to the American people the American people who want it more than anybody else. If you want change, you have to want it more than everybody else. That's just the way it is. Look at John Stewart and the tar pits. If you dedicate yourself to an issue and you, you want it, you can get it. Whatever our government does isn't an expression of the will of the people. It is an expression of the people who fought the hardest for what they wanted. And I have faith in the left. I do. Uh, I believe the left can repeat the New Deal and the Great Society. 
just as soon as they realize the only thing owed to them is what they fought the hardest for. Make me do it, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is supposed to have said to the civil rights activists. Make me do it. He said, it's not good enough that what you're telling me is true and righteous. You have to make me do it. Professor Harvey J.K. says it's apocryphal. He never actually said that. But there's an emotional truth to it that I like. So as Minaj, Minaj will say, I'm going with the emotional truth. Bernie, what, the New Yorker doesn't have things, better things to do than go after Hassan Minaj? What are they, a hit piece on a comedian? Of all the problems in the world, all the lies being told, they're doing an effing hit piece on a comedian? Effing New Yorker? Shouts and murmurs. Just call it shits and murmurs. Have you ever read shouts and murmurs? Like the unfunny... Anyway, um, why are they going after Hassan Minaj? How is the world better that the New Yorker exposed that some of a comedian's uh, stand-up specials uh, were fa- factually challenged? Oh, my God. Now I can't trust a comedian? Uh, anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, make me do it. You have to want it. You have to want it more than everybody else. And Bernie said, it's not me, it's us. I can't do it alone. So I have a lot of faith in the left. I think there are some amazing members of Congress, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ted Lieu. I mean, the list goes on. There's a deep bench on the left in the Democratic Party. So I have a lot of faith in the left. Uh, so my question to my listeners is, uh, are you making Joe Biden the Democrats and even the Republicans, are you, are we making them do it? Or are we bathing in the warm water of Netflix and Hulu, allowing that warm bath to shrink our brains? Despite all the laws making it harder for us to vote, despite a political system awash in dirty, dark corporate money that feeds lies and propaganda into the political system. Despite all that, it is the American people who want it the most who get to decide. If you're willing to fight hard enough for it with moral certitude, if you know you're right, you can win. Look at the gun lobby. Everybody wants an assault weapons ban Look at these crazy Christians with abortion. But they want it more than we do. Only 40% of us who can vote do vote. Now, we've heard, especially recently, that silence is violence. 
Well, complacency is affirmation. Not feeling the urgency of the moment, not feeling the urgency of the moment to register to vote, to protest, to march, to vote, to write a letter, to boycott. That is affirmation. Staying home on election day, not boycotting. It's, it's, it's not sending a message of apathy. It's, it's sending a message that things are A-OK, no need for me to get involved. If you stay home on election day, that's not a protest. That's a sign of complacency. I want Bernie. It's too late. He's not going to run. I don't want to defend Joe Biden. I've gone over this. He was the least of my favorite candidates running in 2020. In fact, until they put the thumb on the scale for Joe in South Carolina, he was like in fifth place. Elizabeth Warren, Buttigieg, Bernie had more delegates than he did. But he's what we got. And he's growing on me because he has to. He has to. Uh, So I don't want to defend Biden. But like most of you, I love this shithole of a country. And lately I've been a little scared. And I hate the fact that I've gotten scared. And I know that as disappointing as Barack Obama, Bill effing Clinton and Joe Biden are, We're still better off with them than we are with Reagan, Bush, or Trump. And that's a fact. I hate that I have to make excuses for Joe Biden or defend Barack Obama, who's off in Martha's Vineyard instead of marching with the United Auto Workers. And the same goes for Bill Clinton. I hate the fact that I have to defend these people. But when you look under the hood of Washington, D.C., there are some dark, evil, sinister forces at play, and they will do anything to protect their wealth, power, and influence. And I think Biden, Obama, and Clinton looked under the hood, and when they looked under the hood, they looked into the abyss and saw their own limitations. I think that's what happens to a lot of Democrats when they get to Washington. We know people are living in their cars if they're still lucky to own one. There's an eviction crisis, a health care crisis. Hate crimes are on the rise. Most of the people, we have 2.5 million Americans behind bars this morning. Vast majority of them never got a trial. The corporations control our privacy and pay us crap. Theocratic fascists want to turn us all into white Christians or send us back to where our great-grandparents came from. And the planet is reaching a tipping point when it comes to climate catastrophe, a tipping point which might actually solve all the other things I'm worried about this morning. In five years, for all we know, the entire planet will be underwater And the only people left will be the ones who were smart enough to invest in a good set of clip-on gills 
which I will be selling at the end of this episode. I've made clip-on gills to prepare us for the coming wave, the blue wave that's coming. If you buy my clip-on gills, you will be able to survive climate catastrophe. So I remain optimistic. I am very optimistic about the Democratic Party and the left. I think the left in America, I see it in Congress. The left is equipped to do the heavy lifting. I see unions. I'm going to talk about the UAW in a moment. I see politicians who will not allow themselves to get sidelined by momentary distractions. I saw it with the Writers Guild. I'm a member of the Writers Guild. Many, many were upset with the Writers Guild because the union did not condemn Hamas quick enough. And I said to my sister, there we go. It's a wedge issue. This is how they're going to destroy the unions. I can't speak for the entire rank and file of the Writers Guild, but when has that ever stopped me? So I'm going to speak for the entire, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. This is what I saw. This is anecdotal. This is what I saw and heard. I saw a union of pragmatic adults who were disappointed. Some were disappointed that the union didn't speak out hard enough against Hamas. But the adults, the ones I know, paused for a second and thought, wait, this is our union that just negotiated a better contract for us with the studios who preached solidarity and stood up for the rights of workers against the billionaires. And now you're going to quit this union, condemn this union because it didn't condemn Hamas? Are you kidding me? Yes, the union, the statement that the union made, it's not worth going into. It didn't both side the issue. It For a writers, a union of writers, it was a bad statement. But what I witnessed was a maturity on the left, willing to cast aside ideological purity to focus on what can be accomplished in the here and now, not over in Israel and Gaza, as tragic as it is. A union is supposed to provide benefits to its workers, not solve the crisis in the Middle East. And most of the people I know who are in the Writers Guild said that. And that gives me faith in the left and the union movement. I am heartened by the left in America by not allowing itself to get divided by the tragedy in Israel and Gaza. I am seeing a wisdom on the left, especially among young people who accept the battle lines in this horrific fight that's going on in Israel and Gaza. And what I see from young people is a knowledge that it's possible to take separate sides in that struggle, but still be on the same side when it comes to the social justice we can achieve 
here in America. What's happening in Gaza and Israel is a tragedy. And when it comes to how to solve it, I don't even agree with myself. I'm fighting with myself over this. And I think most people are, or a good number of people are. Here in America, Gaza and Israel must not serve as a wedge that keeps us from uniting in the fight for universal rights here in this country. Security here in this country for everybody, free health care, livable wages, free housing for those who need it, free education, better schools, and safer neighborhoods here in America. You and I can disagree on who is to blame overseas and who we should be helping overseas and who we should not be helping overseas. And we can yell and scream and even hate each other for not understanding what the other side is going through. But we're living in America. Let's work together to fix what's right in front of us. Now, look, as far as I'm concerned, you can be a Holocaust denier. But I will work with you to pull a baby out of a burning car. I'll say, you go first, you get the baby out of the burning car, and I'll call an ambulance while you're doing that. It's teamwork. Here's what I see in America. I'm seeing young people who are frightened, terrified by the ancient hatreds in America and around the world, but they still refuse to allow those terrors to divide us here in America, something the ruling elite would love to see and they're trying to do. They want us all to stop talking to each other because we can't agree on Gaza, or we can't agree on reparations for African Americans, or we can't agree on who's had it worse, the transgender community or the migrants. But I see millions and millions of Americans on the left who are able to rise above all that and keep their eyes on the real prize. When I look at the tragedy unfolding in the Middle East, I know the billionaires, the corporate elite, the managerial class would love nothing more than to hear Jews say they can't be a part of the left anymore because it's riddled with anti-Semites. They want to hear Muslims and Arabs walk away from the left because they believe it's controlled by Jews wearing Zionist blinders. But I see a left. I see a left here in America. I see a Democratic Party here in America where there's room for people to ache over what's going on in Israel and Gaza and disagree to the core of their very being on how to bring an end to this bloodshed. I see a Democratic Party and a left here in America fraught with disagreements on who's to blame and what comes next, but knows that just because bigotry and prejudice live in all of us, 
It's something to be ashamed of, not celebrated the way it is on the right in the Republican Party. Bigotry and prejudice live in all of us, but I see a Democratic Party and a left that doesn't celebrate bigotry and prejudice like they do on the right and in the Republican Party. I see a left that is angry but frustrated, frustrated by their own limitations of their own perspective, and they want to learn and they want to listen. I see a left and a Democratic Party. I've been to Democratic conventions, mostly with Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, but I've been there. And, uh, and I know that the Democratic Party, as deeply flawed as it is, welcomes people's differences, not just different religions or skin colors or ethnicities, even different ideologies, so long as these ideologies are rooted in morality, best intentions, and a willingness to hear. I think we have no choice on the left and in the Democratic Party but to disagree on Israel, Gaza, Palestine, Hamas, Fatah, Netanyahu, Ukraine, Zelensky, Taiwan, China. It would be, it would be horrible if the left and the Democrats ever found a consensus on all of that. It's never going to happen, and it shouldn't happen. That's why we're members of the Democratic Party, and that's why we're on the left. We argue the world. But I see right now a left and a Democratic Party confused, hurting about Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, but united in the belief that it's only the morally defective who choose war and killing, hatred and violence, bigotry and ancient resentments. I see it here in New York City, this shithole that I wish I didn't have to live in, this, ras- this rat-infested, rancid hellhole. New York City, where the people lead by example. The people of New York remind me what's good about people and why I should stay away from them. But there's a reason they put the United Nations in New York City, because New Yorkers teach by example. In New York City, Right now, we have Jews living on top of Palestinians. And I know there were pro-Palestinians and pro-Israelis in Brooklyn last Saturday who come from the same building, who live in the same building. And they went to their respective marches and counter-protests and stood in their respective corners wearing their respective outfits. And they were angry, shouting, and boiling over. But when the sun set here in New York, they both went home to the same building, got into the elevator at the same time to go back to their apartments to chill. And they were in the elevator. They glared at one another 
while talking about how the new gelato place around the corner is overrated. And how long is this wine stain on the carpet going to be here before the effing super finally does something about it? That is New York City. That is New York City, where one Jew can go to a pro-Israel rally and a Palestinian can go to a pro-Hamas rally, but they can come together on how horrible the super is. And this wine stain is never going to go away. That's New York. And that should be America, where everyone's bigotries and ancient hatreds are decimated by being forced to live with the people you've been brainwashed to hate. That is the miracle of New York City. Palestinians at Katz's Delicatessen, Orthodox Jews at Al Badwi in Brooklyn Heights. And I see young people who totally get that. And I see them all over the world, not just in New York City. Those kids massacred by Hamas at that dance party were peace activists who were reaching out to the Palestinians. And it's not just young people. One of the grandmothers taken hostage and eventually released by Hamas was no stranger to the Palestinians in Gaza. She and her husband would drive into Gaza before October 7th. They would go into Gaza and escort sick Palestinians in desperate need of Israeli doctors across the border. They would bring them into Israel. There are good people in this world. I see millions of Americans who refuse to allow what's going on in the Middle East or Ukraine or Russia to take their eyes off the prize here in America. One of my frustrations when I talk to some people is they don't know what the prize is, so they rather fight and relitigate ancient hatreds. What is the prize? What is the prize, you effing morons? The prize is universal health care, universal daycare, free tuition at all public universities, raising the minimum wage, passing the PRO Act to make it easier for us to unionize, Lifting the 99% up while tearing the billionaire class down into shreds. That's the prize. And if you don't know what the prize is, you're the problem. What we all think and feel about Israel and Gaza, for some, is complicated. I am a Jew forged in the blast furnace of the Holocaust. I know the Jews need their own state because without it, we will be exterminated. I also know that Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is not fit for office and should resign immediately. He is a criminal who came to office by building a coalition of ethno-fascists, theocrats, bigots, and racists, 
who went out of their way to sabotage the peace process by helping to finance Hamas in Gaza so Hamas would serve as a divisive counterweight to the moderate elements in the Fatah party that controls the West Bank. Read the New York Times, read foreign policy, read foreign affairs, read Haaretz. It's out there in the public domain. This is not some crazy conspiracy. Benjamin Netanyahu went out of his way to make sure that Hamas and Gaza was getting funded from Qatar because he wanted to kill the two-state solution. And he knew that if he funded Hamas, there'd be a civil war between Hamas and the moderate Fatah that controls the West Bank. Benjamin Netanyahu is not fit for office. He's fit for a jail cell. And he's not fit to lead Israel, let alone Israel, into a war. Netanyahu never wanted a two-state solution, so he sided with the terrorists, Hamas. Hamas is not the Palestinian people. It's a terrorist organization. And until Hamas bit him in the ass on October 7th, he thought it was a great idea that Hamas was running things in Gaza. What's going on in the Middle East is heart-wrenching and terrifying for Muslims and Jews and everybody else all, all over America and all over the world. I think Islamophobia is real. I think anti-Semitism is real. And so is the thirst for revenge. And that has to be, it has to be quelled. And I know things in America can go wrong very quickly. I know that. But I also know the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice when Democrats control the White House, Senate, the House, and the Supreme Court. Now, I have many, many complaints about Nancy Pelosi. I do not like most Democrats, okay? Uh, I'm voting for Joe Biden, but I wanted Bernie. Out of necessity, I will defend Joe Biden because I am terrified of the alternative. What I don't like about Joe Biden is, like Obama and just like Bill Clinton, they all make the job of president look so damn difficult. Maybe because it is difficult, or maybe they want it to seem difficult because they're neoliberal hacks who want to fail. Maybe. But as bad as Bill Clinton, Obama, and Biden are, they're still competent. They still know how to use government for good. They don't wreck the economy. They respond to national disasters. They don't, igni they don't ignore intelligence reports warning you that Osama bin Laden is intent on flying planes into the Twin Towers. 
They don't get us into 20-year wars. It was Obama who got us out of Iraq and Biden who got us out of Afghanistan. And I think that's one of the greatest accomplishments of the 21st century, getting America out of Afghanistan. Democrats don't rack up debt by giving tax breaks to the wealthiest 1% on the backs of the poor and unlucky. But when those tax cuts are passed, they figure, eh, let's leave them there for a little while. I wanted Bernie in 2016. I didn't want Hillary. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth remembering. Had Hillary Clinton been elected in 2016 and then reelected in 2020, four out of the nine justices sitting on the Supreme Court right now would have been her picks. The moral arc of the universe would have bent much quicker towards justice if she were president right now and she had won in 2016. This is the mop-up for November 23rd. November, what am I saying? November 1st, 2023. I should take a sip of water. Should I continue? All right, I'll keep going. Nobody's listening probably, so I want to go over some other things. All right. I am optimistic, terrified, but optimistic. I think a lot of us uh, feel alone and frightened, but I think Joe Biden has done a pretty good job. Uh, I do. I do. I, I think he's, uh, and I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has to be thrown out of office. Wrong guy. Wrong guy. Read about, Benj just Google Benjamin Netanyahu funding Hamas. It sounds like some crazy protocols of elder conspiracy theory that you would hear on QAnon. Read Roger Cohen's piece in the New York Times about this. Re Foreign Affairs. Read Foreign Affairs, the Atlantic Council. I mean, this is as conservative as you can get. Foreign Affairs magazine. They have a story about Benjamin Netanyahu propping up Hamas. This is not QAnon stuff. Hi. I'll keep going. The Guardian has some interesting reporting on the mounting legal fees and troubles for both Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani. Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager and a white supremacist, well, according to The Guardian, Steve Bannon owes one law firm close to half a million dollars in unpaid legal fees for the work they performed, representing him in last year's contempt of Congress case. He ended up losing but is now appealing. A judge last summer ordered Bannon to pay the legal fees for that trial, and he's appealing that decision as well. Now, I wonder if the lawyers representing him in that case 
plan on getting paid. We're going to help you not have to pay those lawyers, but you better pay us. This month, Bannon goes before a judge to appeal last year's ruling, sentencing him to four months in prison for contempt of Congress after he refused to testify before the January 6th committee. Another trial starts in May of next year for Steve Bannon and involves an alleged crime that Donald Trump pardoned him for, but only in federal court, right? He couldn't pardon Bannon for state court. And uh, that's where he now stands accused of bilking donors who gave to his Build-A-Wall charity that Bannon claimed would construct a barrier between Mexico and America. It never got built. The money never went towards building the wall. And while, again, he was pardoned by Trump, but Trump can only pardon him in a federal courtroom, uh, New York is trying Bannon for money laundering and fraud. And I'm sure we can look forward to Bannon's lawyers taking him to court, trying to collect the legal fees racked up, defending him on that one as well. And I'm sure the lawyers representing Bannon, as he appeals the court order to pay his previous legal fees, will end up suing him for the legal fees. we got to do something about these legal fees. I mean, who would... Who would serve in government when you look? Well, the other way around the legal fees is not to be a criminal. I guess that's the answer. Meanwhile, according to The Guardian, the My Pillow cretin Mike Lindell is facing multi-billion dollar defamation lawsuits from Dominion voting machines and Smartmatic voting machines for claiming they rigged their machines to award the presidency to Joe Biden in 2020. Lindell says he's broke. Hang on. He's broke and unable to pay the Minneapolis law firm representing him in those two cases. The firm has now taken Lindell to court to collect what they say are millions of dollars in unpaid legal fees. And then there's Rudy Giuliani, who also owes his lawyers millions in unpaid fees for their work in a defamation lawsuit he just lost in Georgia and uh, the ongoing RICO criminal trial in Fulton County, where he, along with 18 others, have been charged with election interference. In that trial, three lawyers, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and Kenneth Cheesebro, have all flipped, pled guilty, and in return for lighter sentences, have all agreed to testify against their co-defendants. So Rudy's problem is all three lawyers who flipped in the RICO trial worked directly under him, and he was right up there underneath Donald Trump in the chain of command orchestrating the false elector scheme as well as the pressure campaigns on local officials to overturn the 2020 election. Rudy's screwed. Uh, he might want to flip down in Georgia for a lighter sentence, and especially to relieve himself of all these legal fees. But he's too up, too high up the chain of command in this RICO trial. He's the reason people flip, right? That's how a RICO trial is set up. You get the low-hanging fruit to flip 
so you can get the the good tasting sweet and juicy fruit like Rudy Giuliani. Most legal experts agree Rudy is like doubly or triply screwed. Triply, triply screwed. He has nothing to offer the Fulton County District Attorney other than his sorry ass in prison. He's the big fish. At least he smells like one. His behavior has been so outlandish and untrustworthy. He's anything but a credible witness whose testimony Fawny Willis would want. You can't trust his testimony. Now, Rudy does have a lawyer representing him down in Georgia, but he can't afford to pay the guy. At some point, Rudy and his lawyer are going to just have to cut bait and throw themselves on the mercy of the court. And then it's up to Fawny Willis and the judge, Judge McAfee, to decide what do we want to do with America's mayor? Do we want to send him to prison? He's going to be 80. At what point, after all the destruction Rudy Giuliani wrought, when I think of the mother and daughter, those election workers vilified by his racism, how they were forced to go into hiding, at what point does Giuliani tearfully acknowledge his crimes? And should he be spared prison? Should he be felt sorry for? The correct answer is no. No. He should spend his remaining days locked up. Lock him up. Speaker Mike Johnson on Tuesday named Raj Shah to be his chief spokesman. Shah previously worked as a spokesman for Fox News. And before that, the Trump White House. Shah was Johnson's second choice. Uh, his first choice, George Santos, said, thanks for the offer, but I'm not giving up my seat quite yet. So he's, this is our, our deeply religious, good Christian speaker hires a paid liar to bear false witness for him, Raj Shah. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell held a lunch meeting for Senate Republicans on Tuesday, and it got a little spicy. Not the food, the conversation. He warned Republican Senator Josh Hawley not to pursue the Ending Corporate Influence on Elections Act. This is a bill the fraudulent Josh Hawley introduced on Tuesday that he claims would reverse Citizens United. In front of the entire lunch crowd, McConnell said to Hawley, if you don't drop this bill, then I'll see to it you face a primary challenge next year when you run for re-election. McConnell then warned all the other Republicans in the room if they sign on to Hawley's bill, upending Citizens United, they too would be challenged, primary challenged. Hawley has been quite vocal speaking out against Citizens United. According to Jake Sherman over at Punchbowl, McConnell told Hawley, do I have to remind you the only reason you're in the Senate is because of the unlimited spending thanks to Citizens United? 
Lucas Kuntz is a, wow, that is an amazing last name. Wow. He is a former Marine and Democrat running against Hawley next year. He called Hawley's bill performative, adding that Hawley is a hypocrite since in this election cycle, he's taken money from Citizens United. Why does that uh, not surprise me? But in Josh Hawley's defense, Citizens United is a nonprofit organization that takes money from corporations. And what Hawley wants to do in his bill is only target corporations from donating to campaigns. He in no way wants to eliminate the middlemen like Citizens United, whose leaders draw enormous salaries, heading their so-called nonprofit organization that takes money from corporations and then spends it on right-wing Republican candidates. So Hawley's bill uh, protects the middlemen in this cash frenzy. <clears throat> Senator Josh Hawley is from Missouri, and he is universally despised for many reasons. McConnell can't stand him. And Hawley is not afraid to publicly criticize McConnell. He's like Matt Gates is to Kevin McCarthy as Josh Hawley is to Mitch McConnell. Uh, Hawley uh, criticized McConnell recently over uh, McConnell's decision to support Joe Biden's emergency supplemental for Ukraine. A lot of Hawley's fellow Republican senators took exception to Hawley hoisting a solidarity fist at January Sixers right before they stormed the Capitol and forced him to laughably take cover. He's arrogant and wrong on most issues. And when he's right on some issues, it's for the wrong reasons. For example, he's come out against big tech, but mostly because of the way big tech he says, censors political speech. But you would look at the political speech that Josh Hawley doesn't want censored and call it hate speech. Josh Hawley recently marched with the United Auto Workers, but he marched in support of the oil companies, not the auto workers. He marched to point out that the big three automakers are moving to electric and that means fewer jobs for auto workers since electric cars are easier to assemble. That's a lie. To his credit, Josh Hawley wants to cap annual credit card rates at 18%. I'm sure it's for nefarious reasons. I just can't figure out what his game is there. And before McConnell set him straight on Tuesday, Hawley was fighting for his legislation that would overturn the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which 13 years ago changed elections by ruling that money is speech and therefore the First Amendment guarantees a corporation's right to talk as much as it wants through third-party super PACs that flood the airwaves with ads for and against whichever candidates they target. 
So why would a fake populist like the odious Josh Hawley of Missouri want to overturn Citizens United? Well, there are two reasons. First, he doesn't like what corporations have to say these days. He wants to silence corporations. Turns out corporations these days not only talk with money, they have begun to speak out on political issues. More and more companies are being forced to stake out positions in our culture wars when it comes to transgender rights or or equity. All the stuff that Josh Hawley is opposed to. He's opposed to transgender rights. He's opposed to equity. And more important, more importantly, the real reason Josh Hawley wants to get rid of Citizens United is despite Obama and Joe Biden decrying the Citizens United decision, corporate Democrats are turning out to be the bigger beneficiaries from Citizens United than Republicans have been. According to the New York Times during the 2020 presidential election cycle, Democrats were the recipients of nearly $1.5 billion in so-called dark money, while Republicans took in only $900 million, and that places them at a severe disadvantage. In an interview yesterday with Real Clear Politics, Hawley, right before McConnell, told Hawley not to challenge Citizens United, Hawley complained that corporations have way too much say these days in politics. He cited Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines speaking out when the state of Georgia made it harder for people of color to vote. Remember that? Back in uh, after the 2020 election in Georgia, when Joe Biden won and two Democratic senators flipped Republican seats. Uh, Brian Kemp and uh, Raffsenberger and those wonderful Republicans made it harder for people of color to vote. And Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines are headquartered in Georgia and Consumers demanded that they speak out against this vile racism that Josh Hawley, the phony populist, supports. Josh Hawley complained, quote, what's new in the last two or three years is these corporations now want to dictate voting laws in the states. He then complained about corporations like Disney dipping its toe into the culture wars and said, quote, and now these corporations want to dictate rules on biological men playing women's sports. Hawley insists corporations need to stay out of politics, but everything is politics. When Bud Light partnered with Dylan Mulvaney, a transgender TikTok star, Hawley said he took this personally and demanded that Budweiser go back to representing real Americans, firefighters, and real trans and real working folks, not transgender people, not members of the LGBTQ community. 
This is going to be a losing battle for Republicans going after corporations. See, corporations are brands. They have a story and a mission and a set of values. They use all of that, their mission, their mission statement, their values. They use all of this to get people to want to spend money on them. I know I won't support corporations that don't support my values. Corporate America, unlike the Republican Party, must cast a wide net to increase profits. It must be inclusive to increase market share. This is what capitalism is. More, more customers, more profits, more people liking us, and that runs counter to Republican values, which is to narrow its appeal. Republicans are the opposite of a corporation. They want to narrow its their appeal down to just heterosexual white Christian men who, what they lack in numbers, they more than make up for in sheer authoritarian brute force and a willingness to steal elections. That is this Republican Party. They don't need to be liked. They don't need people to vote for them. So they are not on the side of corporate America. <coughs> How am I doing here? Let me get some of this stuff off my plate, then I'll go. Maria Salazar, the Republican idiot congresswoman from Florida on Tuesday, came out in support of Israel in a way that shows she really doesn't support Israel. She's an idiot, a moron, a cretin, an imbecile. During an interview on Fox News, she accused socialists who criticize Israel of being anti-Semitic. This is one of the dumbest people on the planet. She said, people who hate Israel are socialists, and therefore all socialists, especially the ones inside the Democratic Party, are anti-Semitic. Well, I hate to break it to you, Salazar, but Israel is a socialist country. It was founded by socialists, that kibbutz that was attacked on October 7th, in many ways, is one of the purest forms of socialism. Israel has free universal health care. It's considered a human right, you effing moron. The Senate Appropriations Committee met on Tuesday to hear testimony from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on President Biden's $106 billion supplemental of emergency aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, along with humanitarian aid to Gaza and funding to tighten security along the Mexican border. During his testimony, Blinken echoed what Vladimir Zelensky said during his summer visit, and that is if Congress fails to provide weapons, Ukraine will lose. Code Pink interrupted the proceedings with shouts of ceasefire now, save the children of Gaza, Six demonstrators were arrested by Capitol Police. 
House Republicans are strict ideologues, most of them, and they're opposed, many of them are opposed to funding Ukraine because they're opposed to Ukraine and rooting for Vladimir Putin. But what we're talking about here is $60 billion going to Ukraine. Most of that money really goes towards our weapons manufacturers. I mean, we're giving money to Ukraine. It's really a subsidy for our weapons manufacturers who have some of the best lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So while Republicans might be rooting for Putin to win in Ukraine, they are beholden to the arms industry here in America, which is why... I am being told that Republicans will scream and kick and complain about Vladimir Zelensky not having any clear strategy on how to win. But in the end, these Republicans will do as they're told and answer to the weapons manufacturers by approving a $60 billion, $60 billion supplemental for Ukraine. That is the piece of the puzzle that is being left out. This is a $60 billion subsidy for the weapons manufacturers here in America. So they can root all they want for Vladimir Putin. They ain't getting any campaign contributions if they don't kick back $60 billion to the military-industrial complex. Ron DeSantis is denying internet rumors that he wears cowboy boots with lifts to make him appear much taller than he actually is. But several experts in the field, in the shoe field, tell Politico that judging from pictures of his boots... He is most definitely attempting to add a couple of inches. DeSantis insists, however, these are not lifts. The reason his shoes make him look taller is because he's a little light in the loafers. In the 60s, that would have been in the neighborhood of Clever. In the 60s. So let's go into my time machine. Can I go into my... What do I have here? Sorry. All right. Sorry about the light and the loafers. What time is it? I should get a life. I've just been reading, taking notes, and uh, just hating certain people. Former Labor Secretary during the Clinton administration, Robert Reich, good man, warned that the Federal Reserve is operating under the mistaken belief that one of the biggest drivers of inflation is wage increases as opposed to corporations raising prices to increase profits. This is former Labor Secretary Robert Reich saying it's not wage increases that are causing inflation. It's corporate greed. We've talked about this on the show. 
Last year, America saw some of the worst inflation in decades, right? While at the same time, corporations mounted record profits, suggesting that many of these corporations were using the assumption of inflation as cover to simply raise prices. Studies now show that all the excuses for inflation, like supply chain issues, Joe Biden's stimulus plans, the rising costs of commodities due to COVID or the war in Ukraine, uh, all those excuses had nothing to do with inflation. Uh, it's just that companies said, well, people believe prices are going up, so let's raise them. Uh, so inflation, the kind of inflation we saw in 2022, just greed, had nothing to do with wages. The United Auto Workers are winding down. Their six-week walkout after tentative deals seem to have been struck with the big three automakers. Sean Fain, head of the UAW, said after new contracts are approved, he will work to unionize Tesla, Honda, and Toyota. Something to keep in mind if you're purchasing a car. Tesla is a non-union, anti-union car company. Honda, Toyota, non-union. Although I do remember Volkswagen tried uh, to turn a plant union in a right-to-work state, and the workers rejected it. So I'm not going to pass judgment on Honda and Toyota. They, they, I know that Germany, uh, Volkswagen, tried to, to set up a union plant in a right-to-work state like South Carolina or North Carolina or Kentucky or one of those places uh, where the people are disgusting, you know, and uh, we should. <laughs> one of those places that isn't New York, you know. Uh, um, but you should, <laughs> you should keep that in mind. Uh, don't buy a Tesla. All right. By the way, the media. Uh, by the way, the media in the service of the car companies will try to convince you that higher wages for union workers tax on additional costs when you try to purchase a car. But the media will never uh, report on how much stock buybacks, dividend increases for shareholders, or exorbitant salaries factor into the cost of a car, much more than uh, wages for auto workers. Here's something uh, else to keep in mind, as long as we're talking about work. Auto workers do something. They make something as a team. They can point to a finished product and say, I was part of that. It's something tangible, real, and improves people's lives. It bears repeating 
some jobs are better than others, not because of what they pay, but what, because of what they do for others. Being an auto worker is superior than working in an office park denying insurance claims for healthcare companies. Being an auto worker makes you morally superior to somebody who works in an office park denying uh, claims for healthcare companies. For better or worse, here in America, we define ourselves by what we do for a living. It's unfortunate, but that's our character. In America, you really don't know somebody until you figure out what they do for a living. Well, there is no greater privilege than being paid to improve the lives of others. Some jobs are morally superior to others. Plumbers, mechanics, journalists, nurses, teachers, daycare workers, people who work in nursing homes, postal workers, Uber drivers, food delivery workers, to name just a few, are, are essential, not just to our economy, but to our lives. And their work is superior. The jobs they do are superior than the work some people do. First responders, the police, ambulance drivers and firefighters, flight attendants, air traffic controllers, everybody who works for my beloved Amtrak. I love Amtrak. Pilots. Real work. They perform real services. Without these people, and I apologize for leaving some professions out, without these people showing up, we can't function. As I've pointed out countless times, government spending is more than one-third of our economy. In other words, an economy, at least the American economy, reflects our collective values. It's not just what we buy. It's what our nation's industrial policy, which we pretend we don't have, it's what our nation's industrial policy is. When, when the government is pumping trillions of dollars into the economy, we get to decide what our economy is. It's a reflection of our collective values. But the people who benefit the most from what our government decides to spend money on don't want us to pay attention to what our government spends money on. Right now, the House and Senate are working on the 12 appropriations bills that make up our 2024 budget. That budget, the trillions spent by our federal government, your taxes, uh, that's our economy. It's a state-run economy. When, when the federal government and state and local government make up about 30, 33% of our GDP, this is pretty close to a state-run economy. And it's these budgets, these 12 appropriation bills, 
They reflect our priorities, our values. So if the American people took hold of our budget process, we could reverse the flow of our money from the top and spread it down uh, and around to the people who do the real work. But we have to want, we have to want it more than the richest 1% do. We have to have a, a cultural shift here where we acknowledge that some jobs are superior to others. Uh, inheriting money is not real work. Uh, shuffling papers on Wall Street is not real work, and it actually harms people. Writing lies for think tanks in the service of hedge funds to keep the carried interest loophole isn't real work. It's a lie that hurts people. There is honest work and there is dishonest work. And I think we as a nation have lost sight of that. There is honest work and dishonest work. The people who work in nursing homes, daycare centers, we know they are worth a million times more to our society than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And their salaries should reflect that. I know the budget process makes your eyes glaze over. It makes mine glaze over. They want, they don't want you to know how they're spending your money. Pay attention to the appropriations process. Uh, lobbyists on K Street who are being paid millions of dollars a year are paying attention to it. Not for you, for the pigs, the billionaire pigs. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I went a little long today. I have more and more. I can't get to it all. Please like this so I stay in your feed. Please share this with your friends uh, and your family uh, through email, text messaging, social media, uh, or just take your phone with my show on it and just throw it at somebody's face. Uh, um, please subscribe to the channel. Uh, please leave some comments. I like to read your comments. Thank you to the people in the chat room uh, for keeping... I didn't do a poll tonight. So I wanted to do a poll, but I didn't do one. Uh, and I honestly thought I was going to do the show at 12.05 tonight. My mind wanders. My mind wanders. Where am I? Okay. Thank you all for putting up with me. I will see you all at 12.05 tomorrow. I'm going to try for 12.05 tomorrow. Bye.